started a series based on what is happening at the moment in Israel. We started a series a couple of weeks ago looking at the feasts of Israel. And these feasts are actually God's timetable for the world. Um, God has set out his plan for the ages. You know, one of the biggest um, issues that we have today within the church uh, is, is Israel. You would be surprised how much Israel causes contention within the church of God. Um, the church has not replaced Israel. Um, we are not Israel, um, but neither is Israel without fault. Israel needs a savior. The, the nation of Israel needs to accept Christ as their savior. But that doesn't mean that God has done away with them. One day, Israel as a nation will be saved. One day, Israel as a nation will look on him whom they've pierced, and they will say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Um, so what we are looking at um, with these feasts is God's timetable. Um, the feasts are split into two. We have spring feasts and autumn feasts. The first four feasts are the spring feasts, and they are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. They occurred in the spring, and they happen literally within um, basically 50 days of one another. Then we have a gap, and in the fall, in the autumn, we have three other feasts. We have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we have the Feast of Trumpets, and we have the Feast of Tabernacles. Now then, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. In the giving of the Holy Spirit, he fulfilled the Feast of Pentecost. Then there's a gap. There's a gap between the spring feasts and the autumn feasts. The autumn feasts have yet to be fulfilled. They will one day be fulfilled, but there is a gap. The gap is what we are living in right now. So after we finish Pentecost, I'm going to look at that gap and see what God's plan and purpose for Israel is. The whole world is focused on a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. Um, and we'll look at that in a bit more detail in the coming weeks. Because one of the things that people ask over and over and over again is, is this significant? Is this war that's going on now biblical? Is this to do with Gog, Magog war that Ezekiel talks about in uh, chapters 38 and 39? Is this prophetic? And we've covered all of that. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. So we are looking at this timetable, God's timetable. And these feasts, we're going to look at what God intended them for, how Christ fulfilled them, and then what does it mean to us? You know, so what? It's a, so what about the Feast of Passover? That happened in, in, in Egypt thousands of years ago. What, what significance is it for us? It's an Old Testament thing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable to teach us. It's profitable to reprove us. It's profitable to rebuke us. It is profitable for us to learn and to grow. So it is not there by accident. It is there for a purpose. So we're going to look at God's timetable, and we're going to look at how these events and how these feasts relate to us 
as believers. Leviticus 23 and verse 9. Leviticus 23 and verse 9. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And he shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savour. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hin. And ye shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together, and for this privilege that we have to come around you a word, Lord. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Father, we recognize that there's a lot of wickedness going on in the world today. There's a lot of hate, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of animosity, there's a lot of pain and suffering, and we recognize the fact that that's been a common theme throughout the world history. But Father, we also recognize the fact that there's a day coming when all wars will cease. There's a day coming when all pain will be done away with. There's a day coming when we will no longer be in the presence of sin. But Lord, until that day comes, help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to not lose heart when world events uh, occur in such a way that could cause us to take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and start to get despondent because of what's happening around us. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly upon thee, that we might not be uh, tossed about with every wind of doctrine, that we might not be uh, taken off guard because of what's happening, but we would simply have a faith and a trust that our God knows exactly what is happening, why it's happening, and how this will all come to fruition. So Father, as we look at this Feast of First Fruits today, we pray that you'd help us to understand why you uh, instigated this uh, feast, how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it at his resurrection, and what it means for us as believers living in this world today. Father, we pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, we're going to look at this feast of first fruits, and we're going to see what God has done. Why did God institute this feast in the first place? Now, we recognize that Israel observed Passover in Egypt, and they fulfilled unleavened bread at the crossing of the Red Sea. But there's an interesting phrase here. When the Lord spoke to Moses, there was um, a caveat, if it were. There was a, 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 um, um, a requirement for the Feast of First Fruits. The Lord said, when ye be come into the land. Why is that significant? Why couldn't they celebrate the Feast of First Fruits while they were going through the wilderness? What were they eating? Manna. They weren't planting crops. They weren't looking for a harvest. They weren't looking for growth. God was providing for them. But he said, look, when you come into the land, there's going to be a time when you're going to need to uh, uh, reap a harvest. Uh, three months after their deliverance 
God led the Israelites to Mount Sinai and here God met with Moses. One of the reasons, if I was to ask you this, why, why did they go to Egypt? And you might say, well, because of the famine and, you know, Joseph was taken down as a, as a slave and then he ended up kind of saving the nation of Israel and Jacob and the family came down. And, but why did Israel go to Egypt? What did God do to Israel in Egypt? When Israel went to Egypt, they were a family, 70 people. That, that's all that went to Egypt with Jacob and the, the sons and uh, their wives and their children, 70 people. But when they came out of Egypt, there were millions of them. Now, God said to Abraham they would be 400 and I think it was 430 years. They would be uh, in, a, in a, a different nation before they came out um, of that nation. Israel went into Egypt as a family Israel came out of Egypt as a nation. Every nation needs something. You know, the one thing that America, they go on and on and on and on and on about one thing, one document, the Constitution. There's so many amendments to that Constitution. Mind you know, you've got the, the First Amendment, which is the right to bear arms, and then they've got the Fifth Amendment, which is not self-incriminating themselves, and... There's so many amendments that come, but they've got a constitution. We've got a constitution. You know, how did people know what to do when Queen Elizabeth died? Well, they had a document. They go, right, this is what happens when a monarch dies. This is, this is the process that takes place. Every nation has some kind of a constitution. You know, even as a, as a church, we've got a constitution. How to govern when something happens, what, you know, what do we do as a church? A nation needs that. At Mount Sinai, God takes this nation out of Egypt. And then at Mount Sinai, God pretty much gives Moses the constitution for the nation of Israel. And he said, right, these are the laws for you to live by. This is how to govern yourselves. This is what to do. If there's a crime, this is what the punishment needs to be for this crime that takes place and for that crime that takes place. And this is what happens, you know, if there's an illness in the camp and this is what happens. And this is the type of offering you need to give. God gave them a constitution. And when Moses pre presented the terms of the covenant to the people, they voiced, Moses came down and, the people, and, and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, we're going to do it. We're going to follow the Lord and we will do it. Moses spends another 40 days on Mount Sinai then receiving further instructions. And it was during those 40 days that the nation of Israel turned to Aaron and they built the golden calf. This was the first of many sinful acts by the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Listen. It wasn't a great distance from Egypt to the land that God had promised to Abraham. It's not a massive distance. But because of their sinfulness, it took them 40 years to get from Egypt to Israel. Um, like I said, this, this was just one of many um, sins and acts of rebellion by 
um, the children of Israel. You know, even the, the ten spies, you know, when they went, to, the twelve spies went to spy out the land, and the ten spies, you remember the song? Twelve men went to spy in Cain, and ten were bad. Two were good. I can't even do it, it's too quick. But those ten spies, they were like, mm, we can't do it. We can't go into the land. People are too big. But Joshua and Caleb were like, we can go into the land because our God is even bigger than the giants that are in the land. But as a result, as a result, because of their sinfulness, the Lord said that this generation would not see the promised land. And for the next 38 years, the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness. Warren Weasby puts it this way. He said it was the longest funeral march in history. Uh, and you can calculate it because, you know, in, in the book of Psalms where it says, oh, three score years and ten, everybody says, oh, that's, you know, that's, if, if we live to the 70, that's kind of our lot. Mm, that's not referring to us. That's referring to the children of Israel in the wilderness. The Lord said, you're going to get to 70 years of age. Some might even get to 80. But that was the people in the wilderness. A whole generation had to die out. And a new generation was going to go into the land. The Israelites had two prerequisites to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. Number one, they had to be in the, they had to be in the promised land. And number two, the feast had to occur at harvest. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 19 says, And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. Now then, what happened on the tenth day of the first month? What happened on the 10th day of the first month? Feast of Passover. What? <laughs> Nobody wants to answer the Arasbara. Is that what happened? Remember, they had to take a lamb and they had to watch it for those days. So on the 10th day of the first month, we see um, Israel come in to. Um, the promised land. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 19. Um, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. If you skip over to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, and the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover and leavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So they celebrated Passover on the 14th day of the month. 
and they ate of the old corn. Then on the morrow of Passover, they ate unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self-same day. The manna ceased on the morrow after they'd eaten that. Neither the children manna any more to eat the fruit of the land uh, of that year. So that's two days. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him. And it was the captain of the host of the Lord. So on that day, the day of first fruits, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of uh, the, the, the host, um, God's uh, uh, captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. The Hebrews are now having a transition. They go in from a nomadic people wandering in the wilderness, and now they are going to an agricultural people. They are now going to till the land. They're going to look after the land. Um, the Feast of First Fruits meant nothing while they were in the wilderness because there was no harvest. You know, they, they were having manna every single day uh, for six th- days of the week, twice. Um, there was double the amount uh, on the sixth day, and then on the seventh day, um, they rested. So they were taken care of for those 38 years. Um, 40 in total that they wandered in the wilderness. But now they are going to depend upon the Lord for a harvest. They are going to depend upon the Lord for the future harvest, for their future prosperity. The offering of the first fruits of the harvest reflects their dependence upon God for their well-being as a nation. In Israel, grains are planted in the autumn, They germinate in the ground through the winter. They shoot up as soon as the weather gets warm. They ripen in the spring. Uh, The barley's first, then the wheat. The stalks are cut and they're stacked in sheaves for the harvesters to collect for threshing. Uh, Harvesting or eating any of the grain is not permitted until the first fruit is offered, until uh, they uh, 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 present at sunrise on the first day following a particular Sabbath after the Passover, a single sheaf is brought before the priest and the priest presents that as a wave offering to the Lord. The best, the first, the finest. The whole concept of the feast of first fruits is closely related to that of the firstborn. Both of these concepts are well known to the Jews and we find them consistently throughout the Bible. The first fruits was always the choicest, the foremost, the first, the best, the, 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 uh, the preeminent of all that was to follow. They were holy to the Lord. The firstborn in Israel were meant to be the priests because they were seen as the choicest, the finest. They were meant to be separated That was God's purpose for the nation of Israel. But it was when the Levites stood forward then after the golden calf and took action that the Lord then separated the Levites to be the priests. Um, There are three main principles associated with the feast of first fruits. First of all, the offering was to be the very best. And we, we discussed that even with the lamb for Passover. It wasn't meant to be a damaged lamb. It wasn't, you know, when 
if, if you remember our harvest table, you know, it, it wasn't a case of being like, right, okay, what should we offer to the Lord? Oh, let's take the, the, the worst apple that we are not going to eat because it's all rotten and it's kind of like maggots coming out of it and we're not going to put that in a fruit salad. So, you know, we'll just give that to the Lord. That, that wasn't what was meant to happen. They were meant to give the best. When the farmer went out to cut that single sheaf that was to be presented before the Lord, he made sure it was the best of his crop. So the three main principles, it had to be the best. The, it was the promise of a future harvest. When the offering of the first fruits of the crop was made to God, it represented a prayer to him to watch over all future harvests that were, that were going to come. One of the main aspects of the Feast of First Fruits is the anticipated future harvest. You know, we kind of take harvest for granted here because we just go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's or wherever else we shop, Lidl's, all these to buy our stuff. We don't really pay much attention to the fact that please grow because it's not really important to us. That's somebody else's problem. We just rock up at the shop and we're like, hey, there it is, all in packaging. But it didn't come from Tesco's. You know, if we bought something from the grocery aisle, it grew somewhere. And you've got a farmer there going, you know, if, if we have the wrong amount of rain, the crop is spoiled. If we have the, the, the wrong amount of heat, the crop is spoiled. So this was important. You know, they were making this offering to the Lord to say, Lord, this is the very best. But we're relying upon you for that harvest to keep coming in because we, we, we're relying upon that. Um, so the three purposes of this offering, it was offering the best, the promise of a future harvest, and it was making holy the rest of it. So that one sheaf that was offered was kind of representing then the fact that everything else was holy, sanctified because of it. The sheaf that was brought as an offering to the Lord represented the entire crop, and by offering that portion to the Lord, it set aside the entire harvest as being consecrated or holy to God. So that was the purpose. That was God's intent for the Feast of First Fruits. So how did Christ fulfill this feast? It tells us what God did. Now what would Christ do? There is no doubt whatsoever that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits through his resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and we look at verses 20 to 23. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 it says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, through Adam, uh, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. For as in, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So in order to see how Christ fulfilled the feast of firstfruits through his resurrection, then we need to review some of what we discussed previously. Remember that Christ was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. Um, he was then buried 
um, before the 15th of Nisan, which was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we know that from Christ's own testimony, he would remain in the tomb for three days and three nights. Um, Matthew 12, uh, 40, uh, when people asked him for a sign, he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But he said, I'll give you one sign. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let me ask you this question. How many of you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on Friday? We celebrate Good Friday. Can I say this to you? As a child, I always thought, well, he was in the ground three days and three nights. Friday, Saturday. Friday's one night. Saturday's one night. Saturday's one day, and I guess, okay, maybe Sunday's what? It's like two nights in one day. You know the Lord Jesus Christ, why he refused to go to see Lazarus for so long? And they said, by now, he's stinker. And the Lord knew that it had been four days since Lazarus had died. Why? Because there was a superstition in Israel. If you go to the garden tomb, um, there's always a, a hole in the, uh, in, in the wall of the garden tomb. It, it lets a little bit of light in, but it's, it's there for a dual purpose. That hole there is just in case the soul decides to return to the body. The Jewish people believed that after three days, the soul could no longer return to the body. So Christ said he would be in the tomb for three days and three nights. Christ was not crucified on Friday. I've upset a lot of people by saying that Christ wasn't crucified on a Friday. But that's just a church tradition. Um, it's not what the Bible says. Uh, a lot of Bible commentators have come up with all kinds of ways. Say, oh yeah, but in the Jewish calendar, you know, part of a day is classed as a whole day. But that's not what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said, I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Not part of a day and part of a night and to kind of sort of, well, it's, it's almost three days. And a lot of Bible commentators kind of want to hold to the traditional teaching of a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday morning resurrection. But that's not what the Lord Jesus Christ said. So... Let's look at a few facts. First of all, Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover, the 14th of Nisan. He was in the tomb at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the 15th of Nisan. He was there just <coughs> before sunset on the 15th of um, Nisan. So, we can calculate when his resurrection occurred. Nisan the 15th, one day, one night. Nissan 16, one day, one night. Nissan 17, one day, one night. So the resurrection has to occur after the sunset on the 17th of Nissan, which would be the 18th of Nissan. Um, and that's actually confirmed by the Gospels. Um, Luke records this information. Luke 24:1 says, Now upon the first day of the week, first day of the week being a Sunday, 
Very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher to bring spices when they had prepared and certain others with them. Um, there are a couple of reasons that the women don't come to the tomb with the spices until that morning. Um, first of all, according to the rabbis, a body was not considered to be dead until after the third day of death. Since they didn't have all the medical technology that we have today to make sure a person was really dead, the rabbis believed that the soul hovered over the body and it was only after the third day that they could truly say that that person was dead, that there was no hope of a resuscitation. Um, it was only then that the body of a dead person could be treated by the, the women or the family with spices and oils to prepare the body for its final burial. So since the three days had passed, the women were now coming to the grave to prepare Jesus' body for its final burial. The second reason the women waited to come to the tomb is that they were two Sabbaths. Okay, we recognize that Saturday is a Sabbath. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. But there was another Sabbath. Um, it was the high Sabbath. It was the Sabbath that took place after Passover. Um, Matthew 28 verse 1 says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary and uh, the other Mary to see the sepulchre. I've heard the argument that the word Sabbath here uh, is in a plural form. So it should be when the Sabbaths were over. Um, on the, and it came the first day of the week, the, the women came to the sepulchre. If you look at Luke chapter 23 um, and verse 54. Okay, so let's look at verse 53. They take the body down. They wrap it in linen, and they laid in the sepulcher. There was hewn in stone wherein never a man was laid. And the day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. There's one Sabbath. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher, and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and rested the Sabbath day, according to the commandment. So there's the two Sabbaths. The body was buried on the high Sabbath. The women couldn't go and buy spices then because it was a rest day. So the next day, they went and got the spices. And then they rested the Sabbath day. And then they went to the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. So, um, the LordEsus Christ probably crucified on a Wednesday. He was crucified on Wednesday. The high Sabbath of the feast was a Thursday. The Friday was a normal day where the women went to buy the spices. They rested the Sabbath day, and the Lord Jesus Christ was then resurrected sometime after the sunset on the Saturday. That gives you three days and three nights as the Lord Jesus Christ said. As the women came to the tomb that morning on the 18th of Nisan, on that Sunday morning, at the very time when the priests were making their wave offering, uh, because remember the first group took place 
after the weekly Sabbath, after Passover, the priests were making that wave offering of the, the first fruits. And at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ was no longer in the grave. He became our first fruits. Remember, the first fruit offering was the very best. The Lord Jesus Christ was the very best in terms of offering. You could not get any better. All the lambs that had been sacrificed from Passover, from the time that that feast was instituted back in Egypt, right up until this point, none of those lambs ever took away any sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ was the best offering, was the perfect offering, was the only offering that would take away sin. By offering himself up to the cross and arising from the grave, he did what no other offering could do. Paul said, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. As our first fruits, Christ offered up himself as the very best possible offering. Not only was it the best, it also promised a future harvest. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they are Christ at his come in. The fact that Jesus arose from the grave is a guarantee that one day everybody that has placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will also experience a resurrection. Um, Jesus Christ is the first fruits that provides a promise of a future harvest. The Lord Jesus Christ absolutely um, offered the very best, just like first fruits was the promise of a future harvest, just like first fruits made holy the whole. Because of Christ's death upon the cross, his burial and his resurrection, we have life because of what Christ did. We are holy not because of who we are, but because of who we trust. We are holy not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. We have been made holy because of what Christ did upon the cross, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He offered the very best. It was proof of a, of a future harvest, and he made holy the rest for all of those that trust in him. So what does that mean to us? They tell us what God did. They tell us what Christ would do. But what should we be doing as a result of first fruits? As our first fruits, Christ is our representative before God. And as he said, he has made us holy before God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because of our association with Christ, because of our relationship with Christ, we are positionally 
holy before God in much the same way that the entire harvest that was represented by that first fruit offered by the priest was made holy. And again, this is uh, uh, important information, but you might say, well, what does that mean for me? But let me talk to you, to those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. In the past feasts, we've looked at the fact that Christ is the Passover lamb. His death upon the cross was the perfect death that would pay for the sins of the world. We looked at the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In his burial, he has done away with sin. In his resurrection, he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And as a result of that, he and he alone can deal with the sin issue in our lives. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then that is what you need to do. You need to make that decision today. You cannot get to heaven by coming to church. You cannot get to heaven by reading through the Bible on its own. You cannot get to heaven by giving to charity. You cannot get to heaven by being good. You cannot get to heaven by trying to allow your bad deeds to outweigh, or your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. That's not how it works. You can only go to heaven God's way, and God's way is through his son. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you are not saved, and let me tell you this, God gives every single person the opportunity to be saved. Does he know who will accept and reject? Absolutely he does. But God does not determine that a set amount of people are destined for hell and there's nothing they can do about it. And he's not predetermined that a set amount of people are destined for heaven and there's nothing they can do about it. You have a free choice to accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your choice. God's not going to force himself or not going to force you to accept him and to love him. It's your choice. But he's made a provision for you. And if you've never trusted Christ as your savior then you need to make that decision today. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a reminder that we have been freed from our former way of life. James put it this way, of his own own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Just as Christ is our first fruits, we are to be a form of first fruits in the lives of others. What does that mean? It means we are to share the gospel with everyone we come in contact with. That's how we are the first fruits in the lives of other people. We have a responsibility to share the good news with those who have not yet committed their lives to Christ. It's exciting to know Christ as our Savior. It's exciting to know that our sins are forgiven. It's exciting to know that one day we'll go to heaven and there'll be no more pain, suffering, anguish, sin, nothing like that. It's exciting. And it's good news. And it's news that is meant to be shared with the whole world. And that's our responsibility. So we can be the first fruits, if you like, in the lives of others. Christ wants to use us as the first fruits in perpetuating the word of truth to everyone we come in contact with. 
How incredible to think that God would trust us with such a responsibility. That God would trust us with such a message. I want you to to think of somebody. I want you to put the person in your mind that first told you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe knelt with you in prayer and prayed with you as you accepted Christ as you were saved. I want you to think of that person. What if that person had never told you about the Lord? What if Joe had never invited me to church? What if I'd never heard Pastor Rex preach? What if I never went to Pastor Rex's house and he took the time to share the gospel with me and kneel on his living room floor as I accepted Christ as my Savior? Who was the person that told you about the Lord? Who was the person that prayed with you or helped you see in the scriptures what you needed to do to be saved? Let me ask you this question. Have you been that person in somebody else's life? Is it you that is on that person's mind right now? Is somebody in this church thinking of you because they were the one that told me about the Lord. They were the one that invited me to church. They were the one uh, that prayed with me. They were the one that encouraged me uh, to look at these scriptures. They were the one that revealed that Christ had died for my sins and uh, that he was buried and rose again and that because he, he, he suffered death, I wouldn't have to face death and because he lives, I can live as well and because of all Christ did, I can enjoy the glories of heaven forever. Will you be that person in somebody else's life? God instituted the Feast of First Fruits so that Israel would bring the very best before the Lord, would trust God for a future harvest, and that one sheaf would make the rest holy. Christ is our first fruits. Christ died on the 14th of Nisan, on a Wednesday, possibly. I had a long conversation with Brother Andrew after I did the Feast of Passover, and he worked it out and said, you know what? The first Feast of Passover that took place in Egypt happened on a Wednesday. Three days later, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave that first day of the week as the first fruits of the resurrection. The best was offered. A future harvest is in store. And he made holy the rest because of what he did upon the cross. Will you be the first fruit in somebody else's life as you show them all that Christ is, all that Christ has done, and all that he can do in their lives? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together, for this opportunity to come around your word. I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts tonight, Lord. And if there's anybody watching online or here in the building that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, and I pray that they would come to know him tonight before it's too late. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. We just want to praise you a wonderful name tonight, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's got nothing to do with the message, but just as a side note, if you look at the book of Genesis... Um, you can work out that Noah's ark came to rest on the exact day that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead.
It happened in the seventh month, but in the book of Exodus, the seventh month becomes the first month. So Noah's Ark rested the day that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You could do with that information what you will. Um, speak to Brother Andrew, you probably have a lot more um, details on it as to why it's significant. But there we are, praise the Lord. All right, let's stand and sing our last hymn together. Uh, victory in Jesus, amen.
seek within the world now and just a breath of fresh air just to listen uh, to our pastor preach Lord, the truth of the your precious word and we thank you for him we pray you continue to bless him Lord pray that you bless each and every person here and each and every family represented and those online now Lord as uh, we face the week ahead Lord it's a desperate and dark and dying world out there Lord we pray that the truths that have been spoken tonight if there is one here tonight if there is one online or somebody that should listen in Pray that something that is said, done or sung here, will bless their hearts, and they will come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. Lord, we just ask thy blessing now on the time of fellowship next door. And we pray, Lord, as we love, say that we love you, that you will just be with us this week. For those that are struggling, those that have lost lost loved ones, those that are away and those that have returned. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray, Lord, <coughs> and the blessing, Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask. Amen. Amen. Amen.